from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Do they want us to believe that privacy is dead so that we just let it keel over? They don't want this to remain a battleground as you make the argument that it is. Exactly. Our privacy is their money. The more of our information they can access and, and deploy, the more sensitive, the more intimate, the better. When the Snowden revelations came out, people stopped searching on Google for things like Al-Qaeda um, or Dirty Bomb or floor plans of LAX. But they also started searching less for, uh, do I have an eating disorder? Uh, am I gay? Uh, psychological counselor. I'm Sarah Fenske. Neil Richards wants you to think about privacy, about what happens when governments and tech companies are privy to our innermost thoughts and words, about what we lose when our information is not held in trust, about what's at stake in the policies and rules that govern privacy. Neil Richards is one of the foremost experts on privacy law in the world, and he's based here in St. Louis. Neil is a professor at Washington University School of Law and the co-director of the Cordell Institute for Policy and Law. His new book is Why Privacy Matters, and he joins us today to talk about it. Neil Richards, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So, Neil, you start this book by taking on the idea that privacy is dead. You don't believe privacy is dead. So what leads you to resist an idea that you acknowledge is, is widespread? That's a great question. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a conversation I've been having with uh, people in St. Louis, around the country, in other countries when I travel for work. Uh, I'll, I'll be somewhere and someone will say, you know, you're a privacy lawyer. Is, isn't privacy dead? And then they get subjected uh, these poor people get subjected to a to a sh short uh, diatribe, and, and so I, I think the reason privacy isn't dead is because we experience privacy all the time. Uh, still, it, it's under threat, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But but it's I, I remember the just the last segment. Uh, I was I was fascinated by by the project of the guys you were talking to, and they said, you know, there is no privacy in prison. And it is horrible. You can't get rest. Um, we all wear clothes. We all live in houses with opaque walls. We put locks on our doors. We all care about the safety and security of our information. Privacy is not dead, but it is under threat. And many of the organizations who, who are so keen to tell us that privacy is dead, Facebook, the NSA, um, that shroud themselves in secrecy. Hmm. Privacy is not dead. Privacy is about power. And I think the this this myth that privacy is dead. Incidentally, a, a, a conversation Americans have been having since the late 19th century. If <laughs> privacy is dying, it's dying one of those long, drawn-out deaths like the last scene at Macbeth or, or when Bugs Bunny gets stabbed and sort of prances around for 90 seconds before he finally collapses, sort of. It, it's that kind of a death. And when you say, you know, it, it's Facebook or, or meta, I guess I'm supposed to call it, that's pushing this idea, do they want us to believe that privacy is dead so that we just let it keel over? They don't want this to remain a battleground, as you make the argument that it is. Exactly. Our privacy is their money. 
Um, they they make more money the more of our information they can access and, and deploy, the more sensitive, the more intimate, the better. Um, this is why just this week, uh, Apple made, uh, it was announced that Facebook's revenues had fallen because of some changes that Apple made in its operating system, costing them, I think, $10 billion in revenue. They make money from information. Their power comes from our human information. And I think it's, it's, it's instructive that they love privacy for themselves. They don't love scrutiny. They don't like journalists covering their business. I gave a talk at Facebook about seven or eight years ago, and the first thing they did when I walked in the building was make me sign a non-disclosure agreement that I wouldn't spread any of their <laughs> secrets. So, so there's a there's a real uh, hypocrisy uh, in in these areas um, w with these companies, with security, government, secret police, security services. There's a real awareness, though, more than anything, that information is power, and, and that's what's at stake. And in an information society, uh, control, manipulation, empowerment through human information is, in a very real sense, the, the bedrock of what it means to be, uh, you know, as we'd say as an academic, a, an autonomous human being, um, a free uh, citizen of a democracy, and a, and a protected uh, consumer. So when you talk about information is power, I want to talk about a specific example of this because this is something you deal with again and again in this book. And I think people probably have a vague memory of reading a really interesting newspaper story about this, but they might not remember the specifics. This has to do with Target and women who are of <laughs> childbearing age. Can you refresh us on what happened there and how that fits into the fight around privacy? Yeah, so this is a story reported by a New York Times journalist about 10 years ago. Um, but what's going on today is still the same. It's even more sophisticated. Target figured out that if they analyzed your purchases, they could find out if you were pregnant. Um, they, they would find that when, when women are pregnant, they, they make certain changes in their buying habits. N nothing like, you know, baby formula and, and strollers. They, before that, uh, unscented lotion, uh, multivitamins containing folic acid, um, other sorts of, of behavioral changes that they found using data science correlated to being pregnant. And so what they would do is they would send a coupon and uh, say congratulations. Uh, and, and that sounds, on the one hand, kind of creepy. On the other, you know, people say, well, what's the problem with them sending you a coupon? The reason they were doing it is they knew that when, when people have children, that's one of the few times in their life when their buying habits are completely in flux. Right? Mm -hmm. They start shopping in different stores. And then when the baby or babies come, they get locked in. They don't... Uh, change and so one coupon for formula from Target could could lock you in as a Target customer or or a Walmart customer or or a, uh, I don't want to pick on Schnucks but or a Schnucks customer I don't think Schnucks are doing that. Um, they better not be doing that. Not but, not by well, Schnucks. <laughs> I hope not. But but you know they do have a loyalty program. So yeah. uh, and and so in all seriousness the when when women received these coupons, they, they got a little weirded out by it. And so what Target decided to do was not stop sending the coupons, but they, would, they, would, they wouldn't say, congratulations, you're pregnant. They'd, say, they'd just send a, an innocuous coupon, center of the page, surrounded by coupons for things that don't associate with pregnancy, like lawnmower blades and wine glasses. Um, in other words, to, to use the human information to manipulate a known cognitive vulnerability of consumers to lock them in as a target customer, to habituate them, to control them, 
without their awareness entirely. So there That's is, what I mean by information being power. Yeah, there's real power. There's real profit in this. And as you get into in this book, I think one of the most compelling arguments for me that you made is that there's a real cost to our souls in the loss of, loss of privacy, that without privacy, we become like blander, more mainstream versions of ourselves. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. Um, th this is also a, a something I, I explored in my last book, Intellectual Privacy, but it's the basic idea that why do governments engage in surveillance? Why do, why do we watch people? Um, there's a pretty good empirical evidence. We don't have to get into 1984 or Foucault, or but, you know, our culture recognized this fact. But there's a good empirical social science that's developing that when we get watched, we behave. But it's not just that we behave, it's that we, we conform our behavior, we conform our, our reading, if, our, if we're being surveilled when we read, we conform our thinking to the boring, the bland, and the mainstream, the, the socially accepted. Now, some of that, sometimes that's a good thing, right? We, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if, if, if you have children, uh, I, I do, and mm -hmm. we, we used a baby monitor to, when they were toddlers, to stop them from killing themselves. Uh, <laughs> this is you know, a good by, like, use. climbing yeah. out of the crib. Right, this is, this is, so the point is that information is power, right? And it's, it's not the use of information or the collection of information that's necessarily bad, it's the power effects of that information. And there's great evidence that when uh, the Snowden revelations came out, people stopped searching on Google for things like Al-Qaeda um, or Dirty Bomb or floor plans of LAX. Um, and that's maybe a good thing. But they also started searching less for, uh, do I have an eating disorder? Uh, am I gay? Uh, psychological counselor, right? So that the, it wasn't just bad things that get deterred by surveillance. It's, it's rather socially disapproved things that get det deterred by surveillance. And if we care about living in a society where fee people are free, where people are able to be eccentric or weird, if, if we care about a society in which political dissidents, the, the Martin Luther Kings of, of this generation, are able to develop their ideas away from, away from scrutiny by, by the police, but even by, by their peers who can... Uh, you know, turn the, 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 the tyranny of the social against them, the way middle school is such a stifling and conforming place for, for, for so many people. If we care about living in that kind of society, we need to have a meaningful measure of, uh, of privacy in general, but intellectual privacy in particular. You know, as you, you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. there, th there was a good reminder in this book of something that I had completely forgotten about, even though this had been revealed. Um, I think this was, again, part of these Snowden revelations that as far as people the government considered political subversives, they were trying to find information about their pornography viewing habits so that they could later embarrass them. This, again, is like, you know, this sort of information, this, this lack of privacy. This is power, even if they're not trying to sell us babies formula, um, knowing things about us, it certainly gives other actors an upper hand. It, it is. Uh, the, the, in the most, possibly the most shameful episode in the, in the history of the FBI, um, they, they surveilled Martin Luther King because they, they believed he might be a communist, and that's why he was trying to destabilize uh, the, the U.S. social order, particularly in the, in the South. And they found that he wasn't a communist. The reason he was trying to destabilize America's system of racial apartheid known as Jim Crow was because it offended his religiously motivated beliefs about the equal dignity of all people. 
but they also found out he was having an affair. And they, they documented the affair. This is actually covered really well in the movie Selma, if, mm. if you've seen it. But it's all true. The, they, they documented the affair. They sent him a letter that basically said, we're going to expose you for the fraud that you are, King, um, in their words. Uh, we're going to tell the world that you're cheating on your wife, and we're going to destroy your movement unless you kill yourself. Um, he was assassinated uh, shortly afterwards, uh, so he, he, you know, th that didn't happen. But I, I, I'm, I'm reminded, one of our graduates at WashU Law, one of our uh, uh, most prominent graduates, Andrew McCabe, the, the uh, acting FBI director who was, who was fired by Trump for doing his job, um, he tells a story about when he go, would go in the FBI to, to Quantico, to F FBI training. They ask the FBI recruits, they, they tell about the, the King incident, and they say, why do we have the Fourth Amendment? Why do we put restrictions uh, upon the police access of, of phone calls and the inside of our homes? And, and they let them struggle for a while like good professors do. And, and the answer they're looking for is, we have privacy, we have the Fourth Amendment, FBI officers, to protect the citizens from you. Hmm. Because we know that you're going to try and zealously do your job and you're something that across the line. We need to have these basic rules that restrain uh, police trying to catch criminals, um, that deter crime, companies trying to make money. We, we need these rules of the road that, that protect human beings, whether we're being citizens or consumers or individuals, from these powerful entities. And, and in the digital age, uh, our our technologies, our information collection has, has raced ahead of some of those legal protections. And what we need to do is to, is to think really seriously about restoring some of those protections, creating those places in which people can thrive as human beings, in which we can be politically free, in which our elections aren't going to be manipulated by, by tech companies like Cambridge Analytica, in which consumers are not going to be manipulated by things like Target's secret data science. Um, that, that's where we need to go. But to go back to the first question you asked me, is privacy dead? Well, well, no, but, but if we believe the myth that privacy is dead, we're not going to be able to fight for this better society, I think, that we can achieve. So one of the things that I found really compelling about this book is that, you know, so many times we're told, okay, well, they just need to get your permission, and that's an important part of this. You take that on head on. These, these stupid boxes that we're just always clicking, saying, I consent to having them violate my privacy, and then we kind of feel guilty about the fact we've just signed it all away. You're saying these are not the solution. This, this does not make sense. That's exactly right. We're, we're told so often that here at Company X, we care about your privacy. And then there's a long list in the privacy policy of all the things they do. But we work hard to put our users, they never call us consumers or customers or humans, that they, they call us users. And as far as I know, the only other industry that calls their customers users are drug dealers. But putting that to one side... They say, we really want to put our users in control here. We, we really want to empower them. But there's too many choices, right? We, we, I'm, I'm reminded again of the, the, the really cool segment that came on before me where the, the guys talked about getting out of prison and going into the store and being, and being overwhelmed by the range of choices that are there. Something similar happens to every consumer when it comes to privacy control. We can't remember all of our passwords for all of the accounts that we have. How are we possibly able to uh, memorize and, and know all of the privacy settings, all of the consequences 
of all of those privacy settings, particularly when they're constantly changing. And companies know this, and they know that we're going to be overwhelmed. We're just going to click the defaults. Yes, I accept the cookie. I just want to read the article. Uh, I just want to learn. I want to read. Um, and what that means is their power to set those defaults in ways that make them more money um, are a tremendous uh, ploy for them because they give us the illusion of control. We feel guilty, as you said, for feeling that we've had an opportunity to exercise that control, but we didn't take that step because it's overwhelming. Um, and then the companies get the data anyway, and they get to do what they want with it. Well, so, Neil, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. That makes no sense to have the consumers be in charge of this. We don't have time to figure this out. And yet, in our final couple minutes here, what I'm terrified is that the other solution is our lawmakers, and they don't even seem to understand how social media works. Is there any hope that we can have good, meaningful regulations in this country with who we have in Congress? Uh, I think I have to say, yes, there is hope. There, there must be hope, right? This is this is Churchill's maxim that, that democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the others. I think, <laughs> I, I think uh, and I'm actually quite encouraged, not just in, in Congress, um, but in, in federal agencies like the Federal Trade Commission um, and the, the, the FCC, um, there are a lot of really thoughtful, talented, smart, hardworking people. And, and they, they have been working with limited tools. I think what we need to do, and we're actually having a conversation uh, in Congress, uh, a slow conversation, but, but a, a necessary one, about what rules of the road for the future of privacy should look like. And one idea that I think is really interesting is make, giving, making companies be loyal to us with respect to our data. They can't in, just in share words, this willy-nilly. They can't just share it willy-nilly. They, they can use it to improve service. They can use it to recommend uh, new products or services that they honestly think we might find interesting. Um, they can use it to protect us against hackers. Um, they can use it to enrich and personalize the, the experience for us in preference engines um, or recommendation engines. But what they can't do is use it to manipulate us. They can't treat it like a business asset and just sell it to the highest bidder. They can't use it to manipulate, control, disempower, or otherwise harm us. And, and I think that's where we can go, and I'm, I'm hopeful that reform is on, is on the horizon, driven in part by the fact that Europe's law requires similar sorts of things. And if American companies want to be competitive in Europe, if they want to do business in Europe, they have to comply with European rules. This is an opportunity for American lawmakers to put an American spin on these rules. And, and Neil, unfortunately, we are out of time on this, but that is a hopeful note. You believe American lawmakers can do this. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, Neil Richards is a professor in law at Washington University. His new book is Why Privacy Matters. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske and Emily Woodbury, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? 
Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.